Good morning and happy Father's Day. We finally get a day. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Please stand for the reading of today's epistle lesson from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding the shame, and has taken the seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners, so that you may not grow weary or lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shredding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Michael, thank you so much for reading our lesson. It's always good to hear you uh, share in the reading of God's word. I long for the day where one day Michael's just going to break out and preach uh, <laughs> after the text, and I'll read the lesson the next time. Uh, we're grateful to you, uh, to all who are with us in person, uh, to those of you who are with us online. What an honor it is to share in the teaching of God's word and the preaching of God's word with you. And how about our friends from St. Louis? Uh, we're grateful for them who are with us. Um, I, I don't think you could shoehorn another choir member in that choir loft today. That, that was just amazing. And we're so grateful to hear both our chancel choir and the Manchester choir together uh, to our friends from St. Louis. Almost thou persuadest me to be a cardinal, but not quite, <laughs> not quite. Uh, we welcome you and pray for safe travels 
Uh, we're so grateful that you're here. Well, we're nearing the end of a series. Next Sunday is our last sermon in a series of seven sermons called Anchored that come to us from the epistle to the Hebrews. Next week, we'll finish. But Michael, the text that you read, Hebrews 12, is one that we consider, many in the church, one of the high watermarks of the New Testament, wherein the writer, the author, actually likens the life of faith to a foot race. Not so much to a, to a sprint or a dash, although I could stop right there. And I remember Sherry and I in the 96 Olympics when we were in Atlanta, we went to the track and field events at Turner Stadium and witnessed Michael Johnson winning the gold. I have a slide of Mr. Johnson with those gilded golden shoes of his who set world records in the 200 and 400 meters. It was poetry in motion. It was quite a feat by a man who knew how to use his feet indeed. But the kind of race that's depicted in Hebrews 12 is not a wind sprint. It's a marathon. To compete in a marathon, you've got to have more than speed. You've got to have endurance. The word in the text is perseverance. It can be used as a synonym for endurance. It is the Greek word hupomone, which simply means tenacity. Perseverance, persistence, endurance. I think it was Thomas Carlyle who defined endurance like this. Endurance is patience concentrated. I love that. Patience, one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. It was Gandhi who said, to lose patience is to lose the battle. I think you could take the antithesis of that and say, I think George Eliot said it like this, impatient people are like bees. They kill themselves by stinging others. And so it is. The faith journey is a marathon. And I don't have to tell you, I'm preaching to the choir today, to compete in a marathon, you have to learn to run with pain, with discomfort. Now, to be sure, the original recipients of this epistle, Jewish Christians in the first century, were feeling the effects of battle fatigue of struggle because of their faith. Indeed, they were scorned. They were ridiculed and harassed because of their witness in Christ, because of it. And now it's taking its toll. Consequently, many of them are dropping out. Some of them are throwing in the towel. Some of them are turning back. And, and so at this point, the writer is exhorting, appealing to this congregation to hold on. Stay the course, anchor down. It was two months ago, right after Easter, the Tuesday after Easter, that I had the privilege of taking a group of 10 men on what's called the Jesus Trail. This is in Galilee. It's a 40-mile hike, believed, thought to be the same path that Jesus and friends would have walked during his earthly ministry. We did it in hiking boots and hokas. We could only imagine walking it in sandals. We came back realizing that Jesus and friends were a pretty tough crowd. 
It wasn't easy. We winded our ways through hills and valleys, wadis and creeks. In fact, we started out in a hailstorm, if you can imagine. Our former district superintendent, Alan Black, was with us. And as we were dodging the pellets of ice, he turned to me and said, uh, uh, have you had any second thoughts yet? <laughs> and I said, no, not one. It was the only lie I told on the trip. <laughs> and we have a, I have a map. We walked through. We started in Nazareth, climbing about 460 steps. We started at what, what's called Mount Precipice. And we climbed these steps and began our trail in the hailstorm. And we went from Nazareth to Cana to Zippori. We went to Eremos, place of prayer, Megdal, where Mary Magdalene was from, Tafka, where Simon Peter had his second call, his recall after the resurrection, all the way to Capernaum on the northwest side, as you can see, of the Sea of Galilee. We were walking the last mile. We'd been 39 miles, and we were walking the last mile almost to Capernaum when our bus drove up and said to us, uh, does anybody want to ride the rest of the way? <laughs> and if looks could kill, that bus driver would have been dead. And we said, are you nuts? We didn't come 6,500 miles across the pond to almost finish the path. Even if somebody had wanted to get on that bus, they wouldn't have dared because they would have incurred the wrath of the whole group. If you're going to start the Jesus trail, you need to finish it. And if you do, you will likely do it with soggy shoes and sore ankles. You've got to learn to run with pain. I love what Mr. Barclay said, uh, William Barclay, not Charles. Uh, he once said, endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what we mean when we turn to a friend, appear, and say, no guts, no glory, no pain, no gain. What cannot be cured must be endured. I'm talking to you today about endurance, perseverance. I want you to notice in our text that it begins with the word that we began with the last two weeks, the call to action word. It's the therefore word. It's an adverb that calls us to arms. Therefore, says the scripture writer, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What's in the mind of the author at this point is the image of a great stadium Picture Titan Stadium for a moment. Not for Taylor Swift, but for the Titans. A great arena that's packed with the saints of God, some of whom were named last week in chapter 11. And we, we're the present generation on the field. And, and those stands are, are full, not of spectators. 
They have skin in the game. They're witnesses. They're veterans. They have finished the course, and now they're cheering us on. I I liken this analogy to having the home field advantage. I was reading recently an interesting statistic. Someone had done the math on professional sports and, and this idea of home field advantage, and they discovered through their history that in Major League Soccer, the home team, the home team wins 69% of the time. In the NBA, basketball, 62.7% of the time, home team wins. Hockey, Predators, 59%. NFL, home team, 57.6% with most teams, but maybe not the Titans. Major League Baseball, 54% of the time, home team wins. So the evidence that stacks up says essentially that when you're playing before a friendly crowd, it gives the home team the edge. It doesn't make the game any easier. It doesn't make the struggle any easier. It doesn't make the turf softer, but it gives an edge. And I think that staying connected to the church is like having a home field advantage. Because the people that are surrounding you, the people, the balcony people or the nave people, the ones sitting before and behind and beside you, they're not here to judge you or critique you. They're here to bless you. They're here to build you up. They're here to lift you up so that you can complete the journey. This is why we say in our affirmation of faith, we believe in the, what, communion of saints. Who are the saints? Those who are present and those who have gone before us, who are cheering us on to persevere, to endure. The communion of saints, they're a part of a singular mystical body whose head is Christ the Lord. And that means you've got a home field advantage. And then I want you to notice that the writer says, uh, hey, if you're going to endure in faith, you're probably going to have to learn to travel light. Listen to verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. In other words, let me put it in the Revised Chapel version, we've got to get rid of the dead weight. We've got to release the excess baggage, the the distractions that keep us from completing the journey. I read an interesting definition of distraction the other day. Distractions simply destroy action. Distractions destroy action. If it's not moving you forward in your purpose, then just let it go. Leave it alone. You know, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find, particularly in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, that Jesus spoke really harshly about distractions. Listen to what he said in Matthew 5, 29. If your right hand causes you to sin, uh, cut it off. Be better to go to heaven with part of your body missing than to go with your whole body thrown into hell. If your right eye, he says, causes you to sin, pluck it out, throw it away, 
Better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And when I read that, I, my Lord, I'm so glad I don't take every passage in the Scripture literally. I, I, I don't think that Jesus is urging us to dismember our body, but I'm forced to ask, what in the world did he mean? I think Jesus is using at this point a rabbinical tool called hyperbole. Pastors never use it today, but back then they used it. <laughs> he's over-exaggerating. He, he's embellishing a point in order to make a point. That's why dads, when you're waiting for your kids and they finally come into the car, you say, I've been waiting forever. It's not literal. It's hyperbole. It means get here on time. So he's not telling us to mutilate our body because here's the truth. A blind man can still lust in his heart. Hmm? A lame woman can continue to steal, right? What Jesus is saying is whatever it is that distracts you, whatever it is that diverts you from completing the trail, let it go. Finally, the author says, hey, if you're going to go the distance, you're, you're going to need a laser focus because endurance requires focus. Listen to verse 2 again. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking to Jesus. You see the focus? The best Greek translation says looking away to Jesus. Looking away from what? Looking away from the distractions, the diversions, a focus on Jesus. One translation says fix your eyes on Christ and consider him who endured such hostility so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. There is a technique that sports psychologists used to help athletes. You know it. It's called mental imaging. They train to keep your mind's eye on the goal. It's not about eyesight. It's about insight. And it's a way of slowing things down. I've heard baseball players say that when they're in the zone, when they're so focused, all of a sudden the ball gets bigger and they're able to hit it in ways they couldn't do before. It's slowing things down. Focus I don't know this from experience, but my marathoner friends tell me that it's usually at mile 16 that they begin to question their heritage. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> it's a little over two-thirds through the race that you begin to second-guess. Are you sure this was a good idea? You can't even see the finish line. You can't think about it. It's 10 miles away. And so you train yourself to just imagine, just focus the next step, just the next stride, that's all, just the next breath. If I can just make it to the next corner, if I can get to the water stand, if, if I can get to that lady with the funny hat or whatever it is, and you're not envisioning the long run, you're just looking you're, you're trying to envision the next step. Somebody's at that point in this room. You're at mile 16. You can't see the checkered tape. 
You can't see how it's going to, you feel out of focus. You can't see next year. You can't even think of next month, next week. You got to slow it down. It's got to be one day at a time, maybe one hour at a time, maybe one minute at a time. Just imagining the next step. It's interesting how later in the text the writer speaks of our deep need for discipline. Verse 7, endure trials for the sake of discipline. I'm thinking about my father today. He died 19 years ago in September. He was a man of discipline. I can still remember sometimes late at night as a boy I would see the the light at the bottom of his office door and I would hear him reciting scripture. He was a man of discipline. He was studied and I can still hear him reciting. One of the many things that my father taught me and they were many was that chapels don't quit. When you commit your life to something, you don't just give up just because it's hard. And my father not only taught me that, he lived it because at age 63, the same age I am today, he had a major stroke and he had to learn to talk again. He had to learn to walk again, but he refused to quit. You don't quit on people. You don't quit on God. And God certainly doesn't quit on us. Even when he was running with pain, laser focus, kept his eyes on Jesus. When he died, he gave his body to Vanderbilt, to medical science, because he wanted every piece of who he was to benefit somebody else. When I think of endurance, and with this I close, I think of a 17-year-old boy named Cody Dorman. Cody lives in Kentucky in Richmond. He was born with what's called Wolf-Hirschhorn syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder. He has frequent seizures. He's unable to walk or speak. He relies on an electronic tablet to communicate. His father, whose name is Kelly, estimates that his boy has undergone 40 to 50 surgeries, including open heart. And a few years ago, Cody was having an especially rough time, as you can imagine. He was severely depressed. And through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, Cody was given an opportunity that he had dreamed of for years to visit a horse farm in Versailles, Kentucky. I call it Versailles, but Kentuckians call it Versailles. And there he was introduced to a young foal who had not yet been named The trainer was concerned about how the foal might react to the boy, especially knowing that he was in a wheelchair and and the foal had not seen a wheelchair before. But when the horse drew near to the boy, he sniffed him a bit and then he laid his head right in the boy's lap. The boy laughed, a loud belly laugh, and the family hadn't heard that in two years. It was a magical moment, they said. It was the beginning of a connection so powerful that it defied explanation. A couple of years went by, the boy asked to return and see the horse. The owners were again apprehensive 
because this foal was now two years old, bursting with energy, but they could not disappoint this young man. And so the family came, and again the horse took a shine to Cody, so much so that they renamed this horse Cody's Wish. The horse soon began its life on the tracks. And though he was fast, he was speedy, he wasn't winning any races until the Dormans showed up with their son at the racetrack. He won that race. And believe it or not, in every race that Cody has attended, Cody's wish has finished in first place. Six weeks ago at the Kentucky Derby, in the undercard race before the big one, the family was present. They were there. And Cody's wish, though dead last at the second pole, won the race by two lengths. After the race, the reporters, the cameras were there with the Dorman family, and they interviewed Cody's daddy, and he said something. I'll never forget. He said, you know, we've always believed that God had our son in the palm of his hands. But after today, I'm convinced that God's hands are big enough to hold a horse. <laughs> Sounds right. Sounds right. There's no quit in that horse because there's no quit in that boy. They have the same heart. A heart of endurance, which is a gift of grace from the one who holds them both in his hands. And you can run with pain when you know you're surrounded. You can run with discomfort when you know you're surrounded by a cloud. You have the home field advantage, so throw off the dead weight and the sin that entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the anchor. He's our endurance. And by the way, your witness will enable somebody else to persevere too. Because you are the spiritual therefore of God. May it be so. In Jesus' name.